it's amazing how lazy we get about evangelism and that we uh, just pretty soon, I like church and go to church, but I never think about inviting people to church or telling them about Christ. And uh, we want to start doing that. Uh, we've had people go on to heaven, other things. We need to start reproducing just by sharing the good news, sharing the good news. And you are his witnesses. You are his witnesses. Well, we come to Hebrews 10, another one of the very difficult passages in the book. Let us look at this book and let's see this difficult, challenging passage. He gives five warnings in the book of Hebrews, five warnings, and uh, they are a challenge for us to understand and to take to heart. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 26 is where we'll begin. Now, remember, for 10 chapters, this writer has been saying, Jesus is the highest revelation of God. He is the exact representation of God. He's in the image of God. The effulgence of God comes out of his face. He radiates God. He's greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the Aaronic priesthood. He's greater than animal sacrifice. He's the best thing God's ever done. The best. He's the superlative of God. And he's been presenting this verse after verse, chapter after chapter. I'm telling you Jews who are hearing this message in the first century, some are vacillating, do I want this Christ or not? Some are counting the cost. If I take him, I won't be welcome at the synagogue. Maybe my Jewishness may be expunged from me. This is a common thing in Jewish circles. If I receive Christ, I deny my Jewishness. A lie. It's a lie. You don't give up. When you became a Christian, did you give up being black? Did you give up being an Anglo? You don't give up your Jewishness. But you finally embrace your Messiah. You just, this is the one the prophet spoke of. And so this early audience, wrestling, wrestling. And so he gives a warning after all this. He starts in chapter 2. If we neglect and drift away from what we've told you about Christ, we put ourselves in grave peril of maybe never being saved. Chapter 3, verse 7 to chapter 4. If you have a stubborn, unbelieving heart and you won't believe our message about the Christ, you will never enter God's rest and you will fall short of it because unbelief will keep you from the rest God is offering in Jesus Christ. Chapter 6, if after being exposed to so much gospel teaching, miracles of the first century, uh, second-generation Christians telling you what the apostles said, if you decide you don't want it, you want to fall away, and you want to go have nothing to do with it, he said, you'll seal your doom for there's no other way. Now you come to chapter 10. It's much in the same vein. And it's going to say, what happens to those that don't want this Christ? They don't think God did good enough with him. What do we do with them? 
Verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I want to build the message around this theme, the alternative to God's best. God has only two things on his menu, the best and the worst. The best costs you nothing. The worst will cost you everything. And you make a choice. My best is my son. And if that's not good enough for you, and that doesn't meet up to what you want, there's only one other choice on the menu, the worst, to fall in the hands of God for divine judgment and an explanation of why Jesus wasn't good enough for you. There's three things we'll look at. First of all, a severe warning, and he's going to look at that, verse 29, about three verses. Then he's going to show you what a wound it is to the heart of God for you to reject his best, how wounding, how offensive it is. And thirdly, the woeful judgment for those that don't want this Christ. So he starts out by saying it's a great warning that if you don't want this Christ, he's told you, if you know him, draw nigh, hold on to your hope, don't abandon meeting together with God's people. But then he says, but if you deliberately decide you don't want Christ and you want to turn away, and he said, if we go on sinning deliberately. Now, let me say this. We always sin deliberately. There's no accidental sin. Oh, I just slipped. No, you didn't. You know that old country song at the end of the day, Lord, if I've committed any sin, forgive. Sentimental, but bad theology. See, there's a difference between temptation and sin. Sin is always a choice. Temptation, I can't help if there's a temptation out there. And we're all tempted to lose our temp temper, lost, a lot of things. The temptation, but you make a choice for the temptation to reject it, to not take the bait, but you got to make a choice. So we always sin deliberately, but this is more than just I deliberately sin. It has the idea of a deliberate, intentional, habitual turning away. 
it, it is often in commentaries called apostasy. It's not that I just, I fell down and I sinned. John said all of us sin. We say we don't sin, we're a liar, and the truth is not in us. So we all know we sin at times. This is a chosen course of action. It's a deliberate turning away. I'm going to be, I'm set in it. It's not I just fell down or I made a mistake or I lost my temper. No, I am going to deliberately do a sin that I've chosen, I'm set on. I'm going to turn from what's been presented by the preacher in Hebrews. I don't want the Christ. I don't want his sacrifice. I don't want the Bible. I don't want the church. I don't. I've heard the presentation. I don't want it. If we make that kind of choice after receiving the knowledge of the truth, the, these are not pagan, uninformed. These people have heard the arguments. They've heard line upon line why he's greater, his superiority, his deity, his work. Uh, they're well informed. They're people who have grown up under catechism classes. They're people who have grown up in our churches. I'm amazed at how many young people I grew up with in church have been out of church 40 years. Drugs, sex, and rock and roll look a lot better. They turned. They went the other way. They don't want it. They've heard it. Already heard that. Tried that. Had enough. I don't want it. You got the message? I don't want it. No, you don't mean it. I do mean it. I deliberately don't want it. Then he goes on to say, with such a decision, are you aware that according to, to Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 17, if anyone chose to turn away from the God of Israel, and in that Deuteronomy 17, he says, if you choose to bow to other gods, you're basically saying, I don't buy the law of Moses. I'm in the land of Canaan. They've got a lot of uh, new religion over here. Uh, a lot more loose morals. I'm throwing away the law. Matter of fact, they've got a variety of gods. I'm not stuck with Jehovah. I'm not stuck with the God of Abraham. They've got all kinds of gods over here in Canaan. And they bow down to those gods, and they serve them. God told Moses, you have two or three witnesses come forward, and stone them to death. And I am the Supreme Court. Kill the idolater who says, I am not going to buy the law of Moses. I'm not going to abide by the theocratic rule of God over Israel. Hey, I'm going to go any way I want. I'm going to pick any religion. No, you won't. You won't stay alive. Now, eventually... God obviously, and the people gave up on that because they went straying after all the other gods that led them into captivity. But in the law, God said, stone the idolater, stone the person that turns your heart from the God of Abraham. I can't have any rivals among my people. And so we know, you Jewish people I'm writing to, you know what the law says about that, don't you? Yeah, 
That's judgment for turning away from the living God. You understand that? Right. Argument goes, a fortiori, from the lesser to the greater. He goes now and he says, how much more will God deal with those who turn away his son? And he goes into how deeply it wounds the heart of God to turn on his best. And he says, this is what you're doing to me. Verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one, and he names three things, who has spurned the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace. Three things you're doing by turning away from Christ and say you don't want him. First of all, you are trampling him underfoot. The word there for spurn, it's the word to trample underfoot. I mean, it, it's in some, it would be like you are stepping on a bug. You know, you just want to get rid of it and then walk in on your carpet. But you say, that is of no significance, so you just smash it out. And he said, what you're doing to my son is you're counting him but rubbish that you just put under your feet. It's interesting in the Psalms, Christ will eventually put his enemies under his feet. So, you are making that choice? This is a scary passage. Because I don't know about you, but I had many years in church where I never did come to get saved. I didn't want to be saved. I didn't want to go to hell. But I didn't want to give up my sins. Is it not amazing how good sin can look to a teenager? Teenagers, don't be deceived. After you graduate from high school, you're not going to see any of those punks anymore. You won't even want to go back to the class reunion. And you're going to sing the country song when you see some of those girls thank God for unanswered prayer. <laughs> thank God I didn't marry her. And she's singing the same thing, honey, don't worry. <laughs> Ball-headed, big gut, and, and overweight. Said, good night. I thought he was cute at one time. They're desperate. All the peer pressure to throw Jesus out. I can't be living for God in school. That's not the cool thing. No, going to hell is the cool thing. Being cool gets you into more heat than you can imagine. But they trample underfoot the Son of God, and this hurts the heart of God, and they profane the blood of the covenant. And that word profane is they treated, uh, it was a word koinos that meant just common. Just, it's just common. Sometimes it was used to be unholy. Uh, here, profane. The idea is of no significance, of no divine significance. The blood of Christ, which we found out the blood of Christ is shorthand for the cross work of Christ to pay for our sins. We're not talking about blood plasma. We're talking about a violent death 
under the wrath of God in the place of the sinner. That's a joke. That's barbaric. It's a pagan concept. Take the blood out of the course. We, we have people come to our church that came from other churches. They ripped out all the blood songs in the hymn book. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but good works. Nothing but keeping the Sermon on the Mount. Nothing but being a nice boy, nice girl. Be nice as you want. You'll go to hell. Only the blood of Christ saves. Only the blood. Of, that's what the book says. His blood has put away our sins. You reject that, and you don't want that. There's no payment for your sins. That's the only way we go to heaven. We don't go to heaven because we keep the law. We are living perfect lives. None of you live in perfect lives. And it's so wonderful, a wonderful relief when you can finally say that, even as a preacher. I am here by the grace of God. I ain't the most perfect thing here. But God loves me anyway, and the cross paid for my sins anyway. I'm trusting Christ. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's who I'm trusting. But he said, you treat it as trash. It's just no more of effect than the animal blood that you've been killing for years. Ah, he's just a criminal that got killed. He's a child of fornication. He is not the son of God. I don't want it. I've heard your message. I've heard all the arguments. I don't want it. It's a deliberate choice. I'm not deceived. I've heard your presentation. I don't want him. Third thing they've done is they have turned away and treated with contempt the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that came to give you grace. He's the messenger of Jesus, as it were. Go tell them that I died for them. Go tell them and that I'm going to have the Spirit apply the benefits from the Son's death for your sins. All you've got to do is yield to the Spirit's wooing, convicting, and you will receive eternal life. And what do they do? Instead of welcoming him, they spurn and treat him with contempt. Wait, don't waste your efforts on me. Don't be wooing me anymore. I hear David say after his great sin with Bathsheba, he said, take not your spirit from me. These people are saying, get away from me. Don't bother my conscience anymore. Serious sin, sin going on here, and it's wounding to the heart of God. A gift, a gift, is a reflection of the giver. A gift is a reflection. Now the Father, look at him. Matthew 21. He tells the story of the tenants. That a landowner leased out his land to let these uh, home folks rent it out, grow their crops. He's leasing out the land to them. At the end of the year, it's time to collect the rent. Often it would be in produce or something like that. But the rent is due on the land, and he sends his servants, and the first group he sends, they beat them up and send them back. And they come back bleeding and beat up 
and tell the owner, hey, they're not going to pay the rent. They're not interested. And this is how they treated us. So he sends another dispatch of servants. They go back, and this time they kill some of them. Enough survive that they get the story back to the owner. And the owner thinks, they just don't understand. They don't understand the terms for the lease. I know what. I'll send them the air. I'll send my son. They wouldn't dare mistreat him. He's the heir to all this land. And they beat him to death and stoned him inside the land. And the word goes back to the owner, and he takes his servants, and he goes and kills those servants, kills those people leasing the land. It says in Matthew 21, the Pharisees knew he was talking about them, and they plotted to kill him. They knew the point of his illustration. Now, imagine man saying to God, God, is Jesus the best you can do? Is that the best you can do? He's not appealing to me. <laughs> I don't see any beauty in him. You see, just the Bible, you'll never get saved with just the Bible. Read it all you want. Read it all you want. It won't save you. Unless the Spirit of the living God does a work on your heart, you'll never see how wonderful Jesus is. Oh, you, you talk to people all day, you'll say, well, well I'm trusting Jesus, I don't want to go to hell. Well, how, how endearing. Has he ever become lovely? Have you ever seen the glory of God in him? He says, 2 Corinthians, when the veil's rent, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. He starts becoming wonderful. And you remember what he said to an old fisherman boy in Matthew 16? Simon Barjona, blessed art thou, for flesh and blood didn't show you who I am, but my Father in heaven. You know what's wrong with some of you? You've never seen him for his beauty. I doubt that you know him. If you knew him, you could adore him. A lot of folks in church hoping to get enough fire insurance to miss hell. What a lousy reason after all the years to know him, to serve him, and to give you life. You mean he's not become lovely to you yet? It's always risky to date a girl when I was a teenager. Couldn't afford too many of them. But I didn't want to look tacky buying gifts. So I always took my sister with me. I wanted to buy the right gift because I wanted to look good. When you're 16, well, how does a 16-year-old boy know how to buy a gift for a girl and look good? You know, buy her some Old Spice. <laughs> you know, need a little class. So I take my sis. Now, help me pick something so this chick thinks I know what I'm doing because I don't have any money anyway. And I think of mankind saying back to God, you know, God, if this is the best you can do, I don't want it. And this is exactly what unbelief says. I don't want it. If this is the best you can come up with, and I imagine these Jewish audience listening, 
come on, we've had Moses, we've had the law, we've had this, we've had, is this, is this the replacement? This is the replacement. I don't want it. Well, if you don't want God's best, the only thing left is his worst. You see, the wonderful thing about the cross is when we were at our worst, God did his best. When I was a sinner, Christ died. He didn't die for me when I become a preacher. God had mercy. He died for me when he saw me as a sinner. He, he only dies for sinners. If you're anything other than that, too bad you can't go to heaven. If you're Mr. Righteous, too bad. See you later, man. Us sinners are going to heaven. We've trusted a payment. You self-righteous folks, too bad. You're not going. We're using an ABC around here. Admit you're a sinner. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and confess that he's your Savior. And in that confession, get baptized to tell the world I'm not ashamed that I know him. Have you ever admitted you're a sinner? You could even do that in church, believe it or not. If you want to go to the bar and have to do it, okay. Admit it somewhere. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess him publicly that you know him. And listen to what he says now. If you don't want this Christ, the only alternative is we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Judgment and vengeance is a divine prerogative that he doesn't give to his people. He tells us in Romans 12, don't take vengeance on people. Vengeance is God's work. God does it when he wants, how he wants. It's a divine prerogative. But he said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You see, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 32, and he's, uh, many of the, uh, even the children of Israel in the wilderness march had fallen into demon worship. They were already bowing down to other gods. I mean, but they worshiped the golden calf. And so he writes in Deuteronomy 32, you tell these demon worshipers, you tell these people bowing to other gods that I'm going to judge them. I called you out from the nations, Israel, to be a peculiar people serving one God, a monotheistic people. I will not stand for any rivals. I'm a jealous God. I make no apology. I will not share you with demons. Matter of fact, you will fall in my hands for judgment. Now, you see, I'm in God's hands, but the hands I'm in are for protection because the sheep are in his hands, and he's protecting me but I'm not in his hands for judgment. But if you tell God your son's not good enough, God says, well, I'll have to judge you. I'll have to do the worst thing that could ever happen to you. It's amazing to me that unsaved Christ rejectors, that the only thing keeping them from going to hell is the merciful hand of God. Listen to Edwards. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. 
It is only the power and the mere pleasure of God that holds you up. For at any moment, he can let go and you'd go to hell. Why does God owe wicked people another day? You probably are not sensible of this. You find you are kept out of hell, but you do not see it's the hand of God doing it. You look on other things, good state of your body, you still have your faculties, you still have your mind, and you say to yourself, I'm smart, I'm preserving myself. Your wickedness makes you as heavy as lead, and you tend downward, and the weight of it is going to fall, as it were, on a spider's cobweb, and the web cannot hold and withstand the lead. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution, your care, your prudence, your best contrivance, and all your righteousness would no more influence God to uphold you and to keep you out of hell than a spider's web. Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell as on a rotten thatched roof, and their foot can plunge through any moment. For there are innumerable places in this roof where you may plunge to your eternal death. It is only the mercies of God that he's still dealing with you. If you don't want my son, you voted for my wrath. He said in Psalm 73, I begin to look around and the wicked had good health. The wicked were having good jobs. The wicked were prospering. Everything was going good for the wicked. And I begin to envy them. Why can't I have what the wicked have? Good night. They got enough money to buy enough cocaine Friday night to party all weekend and still make it to work on Monday. They boogie all weekend. They sleep with whoever they want. They drink whatever they want. And they're still driving a nice car and got all these beautiful women. Hey, I kind of envy what these boys are doing because it's not going too good over here for us. We're not making very much money. Our marriage is a little uh, tacky right now. Some of our kids are breaking our heart. And you know what? I thought becoming a Christian, everything would be rosy. And these Hebrews would say, as soon as we follow Messiah, we were kicked out of our family. We can't go to synagogue. We're suffering. It used to be better in the olden days. And Asaph said, I envied the prosperity of the wicked until God showed me their end. And then God had set their feet in slippery places that they were going to slip any moment and plunge into hell and let the rich man have all of his riches for low many years, 90 years, 100 years, to still lose one's soul. What a fool to have been. I think back when my family lived in Harbor Gate in government housing, I've told people, they said, how did you grow up? I grew up there in those projects with my family. They said, what did you have? I said, a poor man's diet. How many square feet in that house? 500 square feet for seven of us. One bathroom, no shower. A mom and dad and God. Even on our worst days, there was a sense God had done something in my mom and dad's heart. And in time, 
all their kids wanted to know their God. Give all your kids and grandchildren all the toys, all the stuff. What they need is the best thing God has to offer you is his son. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Christ? Lee Strobel wrote a book, The Case for Faith. Lee Strobel used to work with Bill Hybels and was a uh, news reporter, a brilliant writer, very enjoyable. And in his book, a book on apologetics, he tells the story of interviewing a man by the name of Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton uh, was a contemporary with Billy Graham in the 40s and preached Youth for Christ meetings. There was another preacher whose name I forget right now. But the three of them preached, and Templeton was clearly the intellectual and uh, by far the better preacher out of all the, of them. And uh, he and Billy Graham preached a lot together in the 40s, but Templeton was the star, uh, was an outstanding preacher. Uh, early in the 50s, I believe it was a Time magazine picture, Templeton saw a, a little girl half naked on the cover of Life magazine dust and blood on her face, maybe the Korean conflict. She was caught in between in the ravages of war, and you had this pitiful picture of her on the cover of Life magazine with those tears. Reminds me of the Vietnam era. We had pictures like that on magazines and break your heart. And Templeton, out of nowhere, saw that picture and he said, there cannot be a kind, loving God in the universe to permit this. The ancient argument for atheism, if God is good, how can he permit evil? And seeing that picture and wrestling, he abandoned his faith. And he began to write against it. And Lee Strobel wanted to interview him because he's to, because Strobel had been an atheist and had been converted. He wanted to go talk to a guy that had claimed to be converted that had become an atheist. Now Charles is 80 years old. He's coming down with Alzheimer's, and Lee goes to see him in Canada for this interview. And they're talking, and uh, what do you think about, what do you think of Billy Graham? He's one of the finest men I ever knew, but he's just naive and stupid to still believe Christianity. What do you think about this one and that one? And he's denouncing the faith, denouncing the faith. And towards the end of the interview, uh, Strobel asks him, says, let me ask you this, Charles. What do you think of Jesus Christ? Strobel listened to him. Charles said this. He's the most and he stopped and started again. In my view, he is the most human being who's ever, the most important human being who has ever lived. He is full of grace and mercy, 
like no other man I've read about in history. Though he was naive to teach some of the things he taught, this is, this is what Charles Templeton is saying. I don't agree with all that he taught, but he himself was the most magnificent man that's ever come into history. After he uttered those words, Strobel said, I didn't expect to hear from him anymore. It had been a long interview. The Alzheimer's was having its effects. But he said, that's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. And Templeton said, and if I may put it this way, and he began to cry, I terribly miss him. I miss him. I miss him. For you say, I have no Savior. I have no blood to flee to. Everything in front of me is chances that I will face God for myself. But as he wept, I do miss knowing him. And has died since then. And probably went to hell. Do you want him? I think of you young people, you're making choices. Many of you have to come to church because your mom and dad get in, you're living at home, you've got to go to church. I had a teacher just tell me recently, teaching at a Christian school, he said he's in the junior high department, 70% of the kids don't want to be there. They're only there because mom and dad are paying tuition to keep them out of hoodlum schools, but they still don't want to be there, and they're lost. Let me say this, that there's an alternative to God's best. It's his worst. It's hell. It's judgment. It's what the church doesn't want to talk about today because we've been tamed by the culture. and We're scared to death to tell people God's in charge and he will have the final word. But he will. But he will. I would say flee the wrath to come. Flee to the Lamb of God. He's your only escape. And God has done his best in Jesus. If you don't think that's enough, he has nothing else on the menu but judgment. Father, we pray for those who may be here without a Savior. Those uh, who've been coming maybe out of curiosity or those who've been in church for years, uh, look good, can stand the music, can even stand a sermon now and then, but they've never, they've never embraced Jesus. They've never received him as Savior. To as many as receive him, he gives the power to become the sons of God. It's terrible. Or don't let any of these young people perish. That Maybe here today against their will, just mom and dad made them come, church kids in our junior department, our children's department. Thank you, Lord, that my dad made me go. In time, you won. In time, you won. And uh, if there's anyone here today that does not know Christ, I would that the Spirit would show how lovely he is, how wonderful he is, not just to escape hell, but to know him for all of life. He is precious to those who believe. May he become precious to us. And if you're here and you're backslidden in your heart, 
and you've lost your first love and you've cooled off about Jesus and you, you're straying, you're playing, you're just goofing around. Why don't you come back to him? Why don't you come back and say, I want to I wanna burn in my heart towards you like when I began. I don't want to cool off. It's a cool age. Some way, Lord, keep the boil in our heart to love you with all of our hearts. Talk to Deborah, this old song. I used to hear uh, C.M. Ward sing it, the gospel revival time on Sunday nights as a boy. There's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. There's room at the cross for you. Let's sing it, the cross upon which Jesus died.